Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2013 May edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with Wynn Sheraton. I'm betting you've never heard of him or his company. He's the co-founder and CEO of Apex Systems, one of the largest and most successful IT staffing and services firms in the U.S., on track to do nearly a billion dollars in revenue this year. He's not a speaker, nor does he do any work in the speaking business. He's an entrepreneur just like you. This interview is somewhat of a departure from our normal format, as the relevance of what he and I discuss may not seem obvious at first. The interview starts off somewhat slow, and his humble and soft-spoken demeanor might have you wondering how this applies to you and your business. Don't be faked out by his humility. This guy is the best at what he does, and the application and relevance to you and your business, although not obvious at first, is profound. And don't worry, the rest of this edition of VOE is packed with great and actionable content, more directly related to your speaking business. I'm especially excited to share with you the George Walther interview on track seven. But first, you'll want to listen to the Wynn Sheridan interview in its entirety. There are a few surprises along the way and an unexpected revelation that we'll discuss at the end. You'll want to hear it all. Join me now as I sit down with Apex Systems co-founder and CEO, Wynn Sheridan. I graduated from Virginia Tech. I was a double major in English and political science, and my father was an attorney for many, many years, had his own boutique law firm, and he really wanted me to go to law school. And he said, I'll pay for law school if you go directly from undergrad. I didn't want to do that. I didn't f- think of myself as a great student. I think I graduated Virginia Tech with about a 3-2, 3-3, somewhere in there. Wasn't going to get me into Harvard Law School or <laughs> maybe maybe George Mason if I was lucky. But I, the, the point is I didn't have the mindset to go to law school. And that, that's another commitment. I understood that from people I knew had, had gone to law school. I was really anxious to go out into the work world. But as an English major, you, you don't get that many opportunities. I interviewed with a lot of the banks and as you know, for commercial lending and some IT companies to do IT sales. I had my wall of shame, you know, of rejection letters and uh, people that wanted to hire business majors or other technical majors, and not an arts and science major. Well, one of my partners, Jeff Veach, graduated a semester before me, and he got a job at a company called Aerotech, which was an IT recruiting company, an IT staffing company. They were growing rapidly, and Jeff referred me and told me all about it. It was sales, and that's what I wanted. So I went, interviewed, got the job, started there in July of 94. Six months later, got promoted. Jeff and I went out to open the St. Louis office for Aerotech. Brian Callahan, who was another fraternity brother from Virginia Tech, went out to open the Portland office. We all started about the same time opening our offices, uh, right about the beginning, January of 95. And after about a few months of doing that, I remember Jeff and I were having a beer one night, and, and he said, you know, have you ever thought about doing this on your own? And I'd actually had, but 90-some-odd percent of those conversations stay in the bar, and the next day you wake up and you say, i got to get to work, and you get back to it. We certainly got back to work, but we also, the idea didn't leave us, and we started putting pen to paper and really making a business plan. That's when things started to get exciting. It started to be get, you know, to get more real, and then time progressed. You know, now you're getting into the summer months, and we were getting really close to just going to move. I liken it to walking a, you know, a plank, or if you're out down in the water, you look up and somebody's jumping off the diving board or the high dive, and you say, oh, that's not so bad, but then you get up there and you're like, ugh. It's a little, uh, little farther than I thought. We, we made that commitment. We've, we finally jumped, and we wanted to start our own company, and, and, and we had lined up everything that we, had, that we needed to at that point. So the only thing left to do was 
start the company. So September 13, 1995, Apex Systems was incorporated. And we started in a tiny little office in uh, Richmond, Virginia, about 700 square feet on the south side of Richmond, Virginia. I'll never forget the first night when we sat there, our furniture had just come in, the copier, the, this thing called a fax machine. And we were just sitting there kind of like taking it all in. And, and then we started putting pen to paper again. We said, what do we want this to be? You know, do we want this to be a, a one office company or do we want to be a regional company, you know, with three to five offices in the mid-Atlantic area? Or do we want to be a national company? And having come from Aerotech, they were growing rapidly. They were now in every major city across the country. We said, you know, we want to be them. And the guy, Stephen Bashotti, who is the who's the owner of Aerotech, is now the owner of the Baltimore Ravens. They're our number one competitor. And we started in September of 95 and been blessed to hire some great people along the way. About our first 50 employees were either friends, direct friends, or, or friends once removed, people that we knew but were close friends with both employees of ours. And I think that really built the base of the company. So here we are now nearly 18 years later. Tell us where you were able to grow this company. Well, we were able to grow it, you know, through the years. We were able to grow it every year with the exception of one, 2009, where we, we shrank by 4%. I think a lot of our competitors were shrinking by 20 30%. Obviously, that was a horrible year in the economy. People didn't know where we were going to go from there. And, but we battled. I'm, really, I'm as proud of that year as I am of any year. But what we did is we, we grew out of that, and we've grown to right about $800 million in revenues, the budget revenue goal of about $930 million this year. So from that little 700-square-foot office in the south side of Richmond, you've now grown this business 18 years later to do nearly a billion dollars in revenue. How many employees do you have now? There's two ways to answer that question. Internally, the Apex folks, you know, our sales and recruiting staff, our corporate staff, and all of our support and IT, well, 1,100. And then our W-2 contract employees, they number about close to 8,000 now, actually. So... So all told, we're about 9,000, just a little over 9,000 employees total. And looking back on your success in these past 17 to 18 years, what are some lessons you've learned along the way? Well, you know, I think you got to, you know, first of all, I'm proud that we even started the company. I mean, a lot of, you know, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurship classes and, you know, it's just statistics are people, everyone talks about starting their own company. Everyone talks about doing their own thing. We, we did it. Uh, and we did it with a plan, and, and, our, and we stuck to our plan. And our plan was to grow aggressively, to hire great people. I think that's the first lesson is the, the thing that really – I mean, we wouldn't have gone anywhere if it was just the three of us. I mean, there's only so much you could do. To grow it, you had to hire great people. And, you know, so we had to develop our interview process, and, and referrals were big. Like I said, we hired our first 50 employees or so that, that were either direct friends of ours, fraternity brothers – or once removed, people that we also knew but were more acquaintances. And I think that built a, a really strong foundation for the company. And then as you grow you know, through the various stages, you really got to tighten up your, your systems and your processes, whether it's training and training and development or payroll or uh, accounts receivable. I mean, all of these things get 
they get huge, especially when you're growing at the rate that we were growing. So I think nailing those things down and building a great culture. I think that's something we did. Our people love working at Apex. I would put our company up against any other as far as a great place to work. I mean, that's something that we really pride ourselves on, taking care of our people. Again, our our longstanding goals from the very beginning were to build a great world-class company and a leader in the IT staffing business, number one. Number two, take care of the people that helped get us there. It seems to also largely be the same business today that it was 17 years ago. I mean, you stayed very focused. You knew exactly what kind of company you were building, what industry you're going to be in, who you're going to service, and how you're going to do this business. Were there ever any distractions along the way that had you drift into other areas outside of your expertise? Oh, yeah. You remember Y2K? Remember that? Sure. That scare back in the day? Okay. That a lot of staffing companies were now in the mid-'90s, which by the time we started, believe it or not, you were late to the game in Y2K to, to get that work. And companies were spending hand over fist. I mean, that was the fear of Y2K. But we resisted that temptation. We, we turned down work. And believe me, it was there. We, we wanted to go after it. But it was a distraction. It was deviating from our path. We wanted to stick to IT. You know, and then the other thing is the dot-com thing. I mean, a lot of company, other staffing companies, competitors, try to do the dot-com thing and, and get on that that bandwagon. We didn't do that. We stayed bricks and mortar. We're in the people business. We're about relationships. You know, I don't believe that Monster or Career Builder or even LinkedIn today, while LinkedIn's a great facilitator of people connecting and networking, it's not going to replace who we are because it's there's just too much of a need for human interaction. So th- those are the first two things, Y2K, the dot-com. And then along the way, it's more about, all right, now we got this IT thing rolling. Why don't we go into finance and accounting? Why don't we go into legal? We always come back to IT. And, and I think, you know, when you got an industry, the IT staffing industry is estimated to be growing 8 to 10% this year. When you got an industry that's growing 8 to 10% and you're, and you're outgrowing the market by two times, that's not a bad business to be in. So we, we feel like there's a lot more to do. Plus, we're evolving while we're still staying focused on on IT, we've evolved the way that we serve our customers. So now we have about 60 branches across the country. So we've got the geographic part, and then we've got the industry. So we've got a group of people that really focus on the financial services industry, technology, business services, consumer discretionary, government, and people that had those up. And so now we hit it from a vertical angle as well. And then there's another piece where it's more special services, statement of work. So now we're competing a little bit more with the consulting companies out there, the, the Accentures and the Deloittes on, on some of the projects that they're doing. Not, not all projects. There's certain projects that we just are above our pay grade, but there's a lot that they try to do. We think we can give the, the client better value. So we've evolved over the years, and but we've at the same time, I'd say we've stuck to our knitting. There's been a lot of temptation to jump into other things, but do pat ourselves on the back a little bit, Jeff, Ryan, and I, because you know we, we, we stayed disciplined. So our audience for this are professional speakers who are also entrepreneurs, just like yourself. What's some advice you could give for an entrepreneur as they're running their business? One of the things you mentioned earlier was getting – very clear on your systems and getting very efficient and putting those systems together. 
What are some other challenges that entrepreneurs face? I would say it's all about planning and strategy and, and then execution. I mean, so we, we spent a, an exorbitant amount of time locked in a room planning what we wanted to do, mapping the invasion, so to speak, of where we wanted to go, who we were going with, doing SWOT analysis and really blowing holes in ourselves. I mean, if you ever sat in a room now, mind you, think about our growth rates every year. I mean, I think we've averaged something like 30, 40 percent growth rates over the course of our business, the, the, the history of our business. But if you ever sat in a boardroom with Brian, Jeff, and, and Ted Hansen, who's our CFO, and myself, and you were flying the wall, you, you'd think this company was about to go under. I mean, that's just we were critical of ourselves. We were always focused on climbing the next mountain, on getting the – we didn't stand around and pat ourselves on the back too long. We, we celebrated with our employees. We do sales rewards trips, and, and we do a lot of things, team building and things that we give to really add to the culture, make sure our people know that they're appreciated and that – and then certainly individual accolades for people that hit certain marks – there's a lot of that built into the company. But as a management team, we were always focused on climbing the next mountain. So we didn't stand around too long after we did $700 million last year. We wanted to grow to $800 million. Uh, while I'm, I'm a little disappointed we didn't eclipse $800 million this year, 794 is fine. And if we can make that up this year, then that's great. I mean, we grew 14% last year. That's not bad for a company of our size. So I'd say that planning and that process going through it, making sure if you have partners, really making sure that you're on the same page. Brian, Jeff, and I didn't always agree on how to get to where we were going. We never disagreed on where we wanted to go. And that was building, again, a, a great world-class company that was a leader in the IT staffing business. We wanted to, the, the BHAG, if you've read you know, Jim Collins' Good to Great, big, hairy, audacious goal was crush tech. Well, tech systems, that's Aerotech became tech systems. That's the, they're the 800-pound gorilla. We're their number one competitor, and they're our number one competitor. That's just something that, that was something that we were constantly focused on. We wanted to chase them down. And they weren't, they weren't going to wait around for us. I mean, we've got to take market share. So we'll go back and talk a little bit about, you mentioned that you'd have these board meetings. We mm-hmm. Talk about your critical analysis process. What were the things were you looking at? and talking about how you would respond to changes within your company? We'd be critical of everything. I mean, I don't think there's we, – we wouldn't say that we were doing anything perfect, whether it was hiring, whether it was training development, whether it was sales, recruiting. We were constantly trying to sharpen the saw and getting our people better, better prepared, giving them more support. So when they went out in the field to meet with a client or meet with a contractor, they had the resources they needed to be the best. So is this a once-a-year analysis? I mean, how often are you doing? Are you guys doing uh, this? Because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, probably there's a big one. The, the bigger one was uh, annually as we were going into a next year or planning, budgeting for the, the, the following year. So I'd say that big one was probably in, you know, November-ish time frame because we always wanted to have our budgets done by mid-December at the latest. Didn't always happen, but that's what we planned for. But it would be quarterly. We'd have quarterly meetings. And, and by the way, we'd have those quarterly meetings became larger than just Brian, Jeff, Ted, and myself. They became a, a senior management team. You know, now our senior management team is, I think, 14 people. And that doesn't even include Brian, Jeff, and myself now at this point. It's constant, and it still is. You know, so, so that legacy lives on. So there's some similarities when a speaker's pitching their services to a client. I think it would be similar to when you're pitching your services to your clients. What lessons have you learned that have made you guys so effective at pitching your services? Well, first of all, in, in our business, it's, again, it's very much relationships. So we don't expect to walk into a client and do one big hard sell 
and you know walk out with the business right away. We feel like it's going to be a process. I think uh, you got to touch a customer six times before they really trust you and respect you enough to give you their business. So what would qualify as a, what would qualify as a touch? We had a sales system, so it's basic stuff, nothing. I don't think it's anything earth-shattering. You know, they'd have their their prospect list of companies that they'd be calling on and it would be cold calls, lots of cold calls. They'd have to have 50 cold calls a day. And then they'd have to have uh, 12 meetings a week, three lunches, one breakfast or coffee, and one out of office. Now, so this is it would evolve with each person. I mean, it's obviously not, they're not repeating in the same week. So they'll meet with, you know, Theo Andros on a Tuesday and just have an initial meeting. And maybe it's a 60-second meeting in a lobby because a lot of that would happen. You know, you get a, these managers and they say, look, I'll, I'll give you a minute. Well, you meet with them and sometimes it's really a minute. Sometimes it turns into, hey, c- come on back to my office. They see that you're a normal person, that, you know, a sharp young person. Our, you know, our pe- people dress professionally, I mean, suit and tie. And then there's that. And then there's the follow-up. Hey, you know, Theo, I'd love to go out to lunch with you at some point, you know, or maybe breakfast if you've got time for that. And then you follow up. So the, the idea would be in the next couple of weeks, three weeks or so, you follow up and, and get that client out to lunch. So what are you doing in advance of those contacts? Are you doing anything to learn about that prospect, about their organization? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the web is give, gives you everything you need. And, and then, you know, there's other uh, tools that we have, you know, sales tool. One is called Discover Org. And, you know, it'll give you org charts. It'll tell you about what each individual in the organization does. And that, that information is usually pretty good. So, yeah, we, we encourage our, our salespeople to do their homework. We always did our homework. And you certainly want to know about the company and, and what's in the news. Yeah, I mean, basic background stuff. Just so when you walked in, you knew if, they just, if the company had just come out with earnings and they either they blew them out of the water or they didn't do so well, I mean, you don't want to walk in knowing that. All right, so talk to us about from the hiring perspective, when you were hiring employees or salespeople, what were the attributes that you looked for? You know, they've got to be extroverted people. They've got to be personable You'd get that pretty quickly once they sat down. Some of the longest days uh, of my life were recruiting on campus, you know, whether it be at Virginia Tech or JMU or UVA or, you know, any school across the country that I recruited at, and it'd be just 15 interviews throughout the day. And you'd get a quick read on people. They'd walk in just the way they shook your hand, looked in your eye, and then their comfort level, you could tell that. From there, competitive spirit. So a will to win, you know, I mean, that's something we tried to identify as a characteristic. We wanted people that hated to lose. If there was an athletics in the background or anything else in the background that that could kind of tip us on that or the way that they would answer questions and we'd ask questions that lead them down a road of when have you failed and what would you do about it? So obviously there's resilience. I mean, all the things that you need to be a great salesperson, I mean, you need to have resilience. You need to be competitive. You need to be personable. You need to have great communication skills. Uh, I always talked about intensity, sincerity, passion, ISP. I think those things are things that you have to have. I mean, you can't go in and meet with a client and and ask them, just give me one shot and not be sincere about it. Put your head on the line and, and say, hey, if, you don't, if I don't come through for you this time, I'll never call you again. And that's the way we got a lot of our clients was asking for that one shot. 
Now, it's often the case when you, have, when you build a successful business, other opportunities become available to you. And you've been involved in many business ventures since creating Apex Systems. And one of those experiences has been being a producer of a Broadway musical. Talk to us a little bit about that. Back in 2008, a friend of mine up in New York City asked me if I would meet with a couple of guys that had a show that was off-Broadway called Rock of Ages. I told him I really didn't want to, that I wasn't interested. The last thing I was thinking about ever investing in, mind you, this is 2008 when stuff is starting to fall apart. I think the first thing I said to him was, are you crazy? No way. He asked me to just meet with him as a favor. I did that, and I liked the guys. A guy named Matt Weaver, another guy named Scott Prizen, and Matt was the creator of Rock of Ages. He'd started Rock of Ages in a bar off the Sunset Strip in L.A. He had advanced it now to a point where it was off-Broadway in New York City at the New World Theater. He wanted to get it on Broadway, but to do that, that's a big financial endeavor. So he was reaching out to potential investors, and we met. Again, I liked the guys, and then uh, we went to go see the show. And after I saw the show, I I said, I'm in. So that all happened in about the whole thing from the time I got my call from my buddy to seeing the show and everything else. Just I just happened to be in New York, happened in about 24 hours. I was that blown away by the show. It's a great show. It's a fun show. It's still running on Broadway been running since April of 2009. It's a long, long time for a Broadway show. There's broad, many Broadway shows will they'll last a month or a few months, and then that's it, because it's expensive. Can you imagine paying rent at a theater in, uh, in New York City, in Manhattan? I mean, it's, it's insane. So, But they've done a great job with it, and it's a fun show. It's 80s music. It's you know all the stuff that we grew up with. And so. now it's become one of the top 80 longest-running shows on Broadway? Yeah, I think it's about 80. Yeah, somewhere in there. It was about a, it cracked the top 100 last year, over a year ago. So I think by now we're in the 80s somewhere. But, uh, yeah, it's been running. It's, it was made into a movie, a, you know, a major motion picture with Tom Cruise and Julianne Hough and Russell Brand and Alec Baldwin, Paul Giamatti, Brian Cranston, Catherine Zeta-Jones. I mean, go down the list. So movie didn't do that great, but uh, the show is still running on Broadway. Actually, because of all the publicity of the movie, it really gave the Broadway show some more legs. So now, not only are we doing Broadway, but we've done a couple of tours across the country, and we're close to signing a deal and doing a deal where it's going to play in Las Vegas at the Venetian, I think. so. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank That's you. huge. What I was hoping for, which I'm not going to get, it sounds like, is that there was some insights about some great pitch, the guys that sat down with you and something really compelling. But it sounds like at the end of the day, it was just something that, that intrigued you and you liked. Well, I definitely like the guys. I mean, no, for sure. I mean, I spent – before we went to dinner and then to go to see the show, I spent about two, three hours with the guys. Look, whenever I've made outside investments – the majority of what I'm making my investment on, I've got to like the concept, I've got to like the idea, but I'm betting on the people. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm investing in those people and the fact that I believe that what, they, what they're trying to do, what they're saying they're going to do, they can do. And, uh, and I really appreciated the enthusiasm. I mean, as, a, as an entrepreneur myself, I mean, I, I feel a certain obligation to, to hear out people that have business ideas, and I, I certainly can't invest in all of them. I mean, I can't invest in most of them, but I certainly try to help any way I can, whether I invest or not. So the Rock of Ages guys had the ISP formula. Yeah, yeah, they were they were certainly in, intent about intense about uh, growing their show and having a vision for it. They were certainly sincere with me about 
you know, what they wanted to do and, and passion was not a problem. I mean, they were, they were, their rock of age is crazy. So it, it's worked out really good. We actually had a, a Greek guy was the lead of, lead guy in the, uh, in the cast, Constantine Maroulis. The uh, American Idol guy? American Idol guy, yeah. And at the beginning, that really helped the show. Really did. Yeah, kind I mean, of a convergence of timing there. The, sure. I mean, he just come off American Idol, got some good press about that. Yeah. And it kind of got the show noticed. And then once yeah. the show got noticed, it really took off from there. Yeah, no question. Constantine was definitely helped launch it. But it was a win-win, I mean, for sure. But he did great, and, and you know, he was, he's fantastic in the show. As the leader of a large organization, you've built a tremendously successful company. You've had an opportunity to hear speakers in the marketplace speak. You've been to events or conferences and such. What are the attributes of the speakers that you like to hear? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, it can cover. I've been to see speakers that cover the gamut. You've seen many more than I have. But I mean, you, you just sometimes there's people that really have a unique perspective and yet a simple message. That's something I appreciate. It's something that they, they give me something. They give me a, just a few things to take away. It's not a laundry list of things of like, what did I take away from that? You know, there's three, three things, three or four things that they want me to take away. So uh, last year was a big year in the history of your company. I mean, you've been in business now nearly 18 years, and in la- and last year you were acquired by a publicly traded company. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, we were acquired last May by a company called a publicly traded company called On Assignment out of California, out of Calabasas, California. We're actually larger than they are. They did seven hundred million in revenues last year. We did eight hundred million in revenues. So we are a little bit larger, but because they're publicly traded, they had access to the debt markets and to do the deal. It was a 60-40 cash stock deal, so they were able to get that done. And uh, it was an exciting thing. I mean, it was uh, it was very stressful for about three months from the time that we really – where they had made the offer uh, to us before it was public. It was very stressful to go through that whole situation, and we wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing for our people. Any lessons learned along the way through that process? Yeah. I mean, there there was – Like I said, it was probably the most stressful few months of my life because we got the offer from them in February, and it was just – it was confidential, and we had a month to decide if we were going to accept the offer, a little over a month. And So what was the stressful part of it? I mean, because it wasn't something that you you didn't – this your business was doing fine. You didn't – you certainly didn't need to be acquired. Right. Right. What was, where was the stress involved? Well, you know, and we always, when we did our strategy sessions, which we talked about earlier, we constantly asked ourselves, what is, we did strategic planning and said, what, what are exit options? So status quo, stay private, and which was fine with us. We were doing very well with that. We were able to get out, you know, money for ourselves, money for our people. You could go public. That was becoming more of an option, especially as we were getting bigger. You could be acquired by a, a private equity firm, you could be acquired by a strategic buyer. And then, you know, there's other, you know, other things that could happen. You could do an ESOP and stuff like that. So all these things we considered and you constantly considered. What was happening was, and why we need to seriously consider this offer is because we were getting so large that there was now only a few companies in the world, in the staffing world, that were going to be able to buy us out. And so we, need to, we needed to consider that. This company on assignment actually, and this is an interesting lesson, in July of 2010, they offered to buy us out for $310 million. We were on the four, all, me and my partners were on the, the, the top floor of the Goldman Sachs building in New York City. And it was 2010. It was the, the world was just recovering. The economy was still just recover, starting its recovery. Uh, the debt markets were tough. 
And so they, they really had to take on a lot of debt to even make that offer. We decided not to accept that offer. That was July of 2010, $310 million offer. And we also didn't think that we'd be able to take care of our employees as well at that number. So flash forward, here we are, February of 2012. So just, what, a year and a half later? And the offer is about $650 million. So in that time, and I think the lesson learned for any entrepreneur, for any, for any business owner, I mean, regardless of what your size is, is that sometimes if the offer is not right and you just don't feel it in your gut and, and you've done all your due diligence, and by the way, we always listened. I mean, we've had people trying to buy us out since 2002, 2003, knocking on our door, and we always listened. Even though we didn't have a for sale sign in the yard, we always listened because we wanted to learn about the process because we knew that someday – it was very likely that we were going to get acquired and we wanted to be ready to make the best decision. So all that said, the reason that it really was so stressful is the finality of it. And I think any business owner will struggle with that, struggle with the idea that once it's announced in March, and really it was announced March 22nd, and then they did two, about two months of due diligence. So you really had till May 15th, but you really didn't want to announce it unless you were sure once that deal was announced, there was probably no looking back. And, and there's so many details. There's so many attorneys involved, so many accountants involved, so many bankers involved, and there's mounds of paper to go through. And I just wanted to make sure I didn't screw it up because I didn't want to leave a legacy for, you know, for our people. So as it turned out, I would get up at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, write out pages of notes just to try to blow holes in the deal. And I'd recommend that to any business owner. Blow holes in the deal. Don't embrace it right away. A lot of people, when they, when they get an offer, it's very flattering. It makes you feel great. But you want to step back and say, is this the best thing? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes you got to go through your options. Sometimes you say, hey, you know what? I've really got a great thing going here. We're going to keep it going. And we did that multiple times over the years where we stayed private. And we just said, no, thank you. Re- really appreciate it, but no thanks. But in but, 2010, you turned down $300 million to sell your business. And yeah. 18 months later, you more than doubled that offer. Yeah. And that was a result. The, the reason people ask, people say, how the heck did that happen? Well, two things. We executed, we grew in 2010, we grew 43%. In 2011, we grew 30%. And by the way, I'd hit, I'd, we'd really hit it off with the CEO at, on assignment. I love the guy. I'd met with him. I'd been kind of the main contact. Him and I had been to dinner before we even started the courtship. And then when we walked away, it was amicable. He understood where we were coming from. And we said, hey, we're going to stay in touch. So there you are with relationships. Him and I had met for dinner, lunch, over those year and a half. And then it was a Christmas call. You know, right before the Christmas holidays, 2011, where I called him up. I said, hey, Pete, just checking in, wanted to see how you're doing, wanted to see how the year was for you. And we had a good chat. And at the end of the phone call, he said, Mid, mid-January, after we all get back and settled in from the break, let's have a serious talk. I'd like to revisit things. And we said, I said, okay. And me and the partners were all on board with that. And so that was something that, uh, you know, that, that was interesting to me. I mean, so the, the growth and the execution of us – increased our value. The debt markets had become, as you know, much healthier by 2012 from 2010. So just in that time. And so, yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it was very stressful just because there's so much and you just had this feeling like, I mean, I trusted Peter Damaris. That's the CEO of Unsignment. I trusted the management team over there. 
But reality is you got to get everything in a contract. I would tell any business owner, regardless of the size of your business, scrutinize every word of a contract and make sure you're getting everything you want if it ever comes to a point where you have the opportunity to, to sell your business. Because we did it. It was obviously on a very large scale, but it, it, it didn't change the fact that come May 15th, I was not going to be the primary owner of the business anymore. I was going to be a large st- stockholder. I was going to be on the board of directors of On Assignment. But if I didn't get certain things in place, then I wasn't. I was going to be letting my employees down. The, the legacy is it's still Apex Systems. We're a division of On Assignment. No layoffs anywhere in the company. Not at our corporate headquarters. Nowhere in our company. Very proud of that. No compensation changes, which is huge because as a privately held company, we paid our people very aggressively from a commission standpoint. We also did discretionary bonuses and profit sharing because we had a principals program, about 55 people in that program. And our top 95 people got stock in the company that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. So there was a lot of great things and and really effectively couldn't have worked out any better. And and here I am, you know, a year later, and I, I just, I feel very, very satisfied and uh, about the whole thing. And really, the, the the best measure is nothing's really changed. You know, I mean, our people, when I call up and I talk to, you know, one of our people, the guy who runs our Chicago office, and I'm talking to him about issues that are coming up, he's talking to me about the same issues we were talking about in 2010, 2011. How do we gri- take more market share? How do we get into this client or that client? So that tells me life is life is good. Life is as it should be at Apex. Thank you, Wynn. Did you hear that, NSA Nation? Three fraternity brothers get together over a few beers, decide to start their own company, take the leap, write a business plan, execute the business plan, read a book, good to great, do what the book says to do, and along the way, build a company they eventually sell for $650 million. Are you kidding me? So many lessons here for speakers, more than I have space to cover on VOE. I'd love to hear what lessons you learned, and if you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Send me an email with what you got out of this, and I'll reply with what I got out of it. Email me, theo at andros.com. We now go all the way to Johannesburg, South Africa, to learn how Steph Duplessis has been able to leverage his library of content to create revenue beyond his speaking fee. Steph Duplessis, Johannesburg-based, been in the business for 20 years, first just as a keynote speaker, now have built a business around it. In the earlier years when we did not have a speakers association, I used to tag over here to attend, then later attended in Australia and in England. I am the founder of the um, National Speakers Association in South Africa, which has now become the Professional Speakers Association. Together with my business partner, Steve Simpson, CSP in Australia, We've managed to create a system that gets clients to pass significant sums our way in exchange for giving them access to our resources online. We don't sell product online the way that many other guys sell product online. We make available access to systems online. What type of systems are these? We have a concept called UGRs, Unwritten Ground Rules, which is not important because you can plug any content into this system. But if I can try and equate it for you briefly, if you do a keynote, if you're a keynote speaker and you charge a fee of whatever it is, you want to earn more money in your career, you can do it, I think, in only one of two ways, charge more or speak more frequently. Those are both tough things to do, besides which it will only increase your revenue by so much. If you quadrupled your fee, you would quadruple your earnings, and that would be it. You can't take the ceiling off. 
So you've got to do something different to take the ceiling off. So perhaps let me give you the steps to, to the system rather than telling you about ours, because I would want the VOE listeners to plug their own content into this. And, and also, this is really for a, 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 an established presenter. I think three, five, ten years down the road, we've all got bunches of articles, we've got bunches of stuff, we've got old workbooks, which we used to photocopy, Xerox, I think you guys call it, and carry around in boxes. And we used to see trainers at the airports with these big boxes full of, 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 of content. We have old talks, we have old audios, we have old video clips, and a lot of it we're not using. It's in boxes in our garage and we store it for posterity. I think we should take the dust off a lot of those things and just repackage them, make them look pretty, make them re-relevant to what's happening today and get them online. Once they're online, we can put them behind a password and give clients access to it. So let's call that phase one. Now imagine going out and doing a keynote or a short workshop or a day workshop on your content. But if you could precede that workshop with something and take the result of that something with you on the day of the workshop, you can already add a wide margin to your fee. I think you can add 50% to your fee or double it for doing just what I'm going to tell you about now. Go to SurveyMonkey, set up surveys, pay a small premium and be able to set up surveys without the SurveyMonkey logo on it and use that to solicit information about the organization relevant to your topic. So whatever it is you speak or train on, figure out some information, some measurables that the client doesn't typically measure but that is relevant to their business and create an assessment to generate data that in presentation can show the client where they stand now relating to, to benchmark measures in their industry pertaining to whatever your topic is. Let me give you an example. We work in the field of workplace culture. So we would do two assessments prior to a client engagement, even for a keynote or a short workshop. And we would firstly determine which measures are important for them in a survey, and then we would measure how they're doing on those measures in another survey. So once you've done these two assessments, you now go to your workshop with data in hand, information in hand, that during the workshop can tell the client where they stand now. And for this, I think you add 50% or 100% to your fee. If you now have a rollout concept, stuff that the client can do after the event, based on what you taught them and what you shared with them, to implement the things that you spoke to them about, let's call that an implementation guide. It's not a complex document, it's a one-pager, it's a five-pager. And it outlines the steps that the client need to take in order to execute the stuff that you talked about in the workshop. Because one of the outcomes of the workshop was to identify key issues that they had to address relevant to your topic. So an implementation guide is just an outline of the steps that the client need to take to implement your stuff. Ours is in three versions. The first is a DIY, do-it-yourself version. So in the first instance, for double my daily rate, I would do two pre-assessments and do a one-day workshop, leaving them with the knowledge, the insights, and a small, an actionable strategy for them to implement the stuff, whatever your topic might be. You leave them with an implementation guide, and they implement the stuff, DIY in a box. I have a little spin on this, which perhaps um, some of the guys out there can use. I often am willing to do that session on risk. I'm willing to say to the client, pay me the fee for, for my day, pay me the fee for my two assessments, put it in the bank, 
but I will guarantee to pay it back. back. I undertake to pay it back if I suck. If I don't deliver value, they can have the money back. Um, it doesn't happen a lot. But I also tell them that based on two preconditions, they can have the money back. Precondition number one, that the executive team was in the room, including the CEO or the MD, and that they attended the entire session. Precursor number two, that if the MD or the CEO gives me a letter at the conclusion of our session telling me that they will not use any of our intellectual capital in their organization in any way, shape or form, I'll give them the money back and they've made an educated decision knowing not to use our stuff. However, we also now have, let's call it an intermediate option, which means I just add some access after this event, after this one-day workshop. They um, have the implementation guide, but they don't want to do it alone. They want to do a little bit more. I have already pre-quoted them the fee for an intermediate step. In this intermediate step, they now get access to online resources, assessments, articles, tools, all of the stuff that any five-year or longer speaker in the business has, but all online, looks good, and is accessible behind the password. Now the client gets to use the stuff to implement our process. And I throw in a webinar or two, and give them the option to buy more at a reduced rate of my standard fees. Option number three is the gung-ho version. You now get to add two zeros if you want. And the gung-ho version gets us to train up core people within the organization relevant to our topic, the listener relevant to their topic, and they train people up to use the systems. You give them access to more online systems, and you do things like a weekly or a two-weekly online follow-up with an article or a magazine for a year, or you do a weekly or a two-weekly article. I said magazine, I didn't mean to say magazine, I meant to say article. Or you do a weekly or a two-weekly follow-up with an audio clip, or you do a monthly or a twice-a-month webinar, or you even do online video clips. All of the stuff that you already have, you just space it over a year. And now you've given them everything that they need in order to actually implement everything that relates to your topic. Thank you, Steph. And thank you to past NSA President Scott Friedman for introducing us. I met Steph at an NSA convention where I also met our next guest, Sally Hogshead. You heard from Sally on the April edition of VOE where she revealed her secrets on how to fascinate your audiences and get yourself booked. This month, she shares with us how a convention connection turned into a new business relationship. Sally? I want to confess and share a secret that the first day of the NSA conference in 2011 in Anaheim, I was very nervous. My speaking business was not in a good place. I was not getting booked the way I needed to in order to be a full-time speaker. I was struggling to understand, you know, why is it that I was working so hard? I was doing all the right steps. I was doing all the right things. I had a blog. I was doing outreach. I even had a speaking coach. I'd worked hard to publish a book with HarperCollins. I mean, check, 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 down the list. I did everything you're supposed to do. What I hadn't done was get involved in NSA. And when I came that first day, it was like the world cracked opened for me. I suddenly had this epiphany that changed the course of my career and I would say changed the course of my life because I understood how the pieces fit together and I saw through my conversations with people that I'd always admired but always been too intimidated to talk to I I learned that I don't that there isn't one right way of putting a speaking career together 
that what's most important is for your speaking career to be an extension of your personality. And that if, if your content is in complete alignment with who you are as a person and what you believe, and that if you can communicate that very, very quickly to the decision makers in the process, you become far more compelling than somebody who has the shiny, perfect, so-called right speaking career. L- let me give you an example. So the first day of the, of the convention, I saw a speaker that I'd always admired but had never met, Mark Sanborn. And I'd always been very intimidated by, by people who were, who were legendary speakers like that because obviously there was so much they knew that I didn't. And I watched after Mark did his session, and one by one people came up. It was almost like they were paying homage to him. You know, there was this long line of people. And as I watched, I realized that they all sort of introduced themselves to him in the same way. They smiled, they made eye contact, they put out their hand, they said, hello, my name is, and then there was this awkward pause where Mark would very, you know, in his, in his perfectly genteel, polished diplomacy would always sort of fill the conversational gap. But it was like the work was put on Mark to make the conversation work, and then there would be awkward fluff, and then the person would go on and the next person would come up. I was intimidated by not only Mark, but by that whole process, as clearly everybody here was speaking a language that I didn't speak. So I, I went on and I did not introduce myself to him. Then after about a day, I started getting more comfortable and I began to realize that everybody here was here to support. And that even though I was new to NSA, that I could ask the authentic questions, the, the burning questions, those things that I needed to know in order to move my business forward. Like, how the heck do I figure out who to contact? Where do I, you know, is it the bureau or the client? Is it the speaking manager? It was just all very, very confusing. And, you know, there's so much protocol that we take for granted once we're involved in NSA that, that, that others don't know when it begins. It's quite daunting. So by the end of that first day, I saw Mark again. And I had a question that I really wanted to know. Mark lives in Denver, and so there are a lot of events that take place in Denver. I live in Orlando, but I've never actually been booked in Orlando. So I said to Mark, do you lower your fee when you speak in Denver? I mean, it's something I really wanted to know, and it was maybe, maybe a bit presumptuous of me to just jump right into something that was perhaps putting him on the spot, but it was a genuine question. I really wanted to know. And not only did he give me a wonderful answer and weighed the pros and cons with me, but he pulled in a few other Hall of Fame speakers and got their take on it. So then I got the benefit of Mark's wisdom and other people's wisdom, like Scott McCain. I think Larry Wingett was there. Anyway, not only that, but Mark and I continued the conversation. We spoke after the conference and developed a, a, a genuine friendship and now are partners with Larry Wingett and Bob Berg in a, in a project that I'm incredibly proud of. And it all started with NSA 2011. There are so many ways that I can trace back the, these blessings that I've had in my life over the last year that came out of the people from NSA last year, from the way people give of themselves in the sessions and the, the level of participation that people have, that they participate with their whole heart, that they're not here to sell, they're not here to market, they're here to give back. My hope is that people who are here for the first time, I want them to imagine that all of us here have a sign over our head that says, I'm here to help. What, what, what can I help you with? Because the reality is I have a lot of questions too. You know, we, we don't work in, we tend to not work in communities. We work in these little vacuum sealed packages going from location to location in airplanes and hotels and conference rooms. So we don't have enough sharing of wisdom and this is where we come to do it. This is where the ecosystem happens. And I think it's really critical that we not have those fluff conversations and instead have the real meaningful conversations because that's not only the value of NSA, but that's the value of being a speaker that we can share our message with each other. Oh,
Thank you, Sally. All this talk about convention has me wondering, are you going? Sure, we'd love to see you there. Enjoy this convention promo as you're thinking about it. We know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, the NSA convention. Philadelphia, July 27th through 30th. Saw that. So sell me. And by sell, I mean impress me with who will be on the main stage. (laughs) You got it. You're going to hear from Bond. Not James Bond. Walter Bond. He's Mr. Accountability and will reveal exactly how he doubled his NBA income as a speaker. There will be our youngest ever general session presenter, 18-year-old podcaster genius Philip Reederly from Germany. His Mein iPhone und Ech podcast reaches over a million viewers each year. He'll share how to digitally market to your customers of tomorrow. Yes, in English. And you'll experience Connie Deacon, Emmy Award-winning journalist, broadcast hall of famer, and leadership communication authority. She'll be giving you the real deal on how to influence and win over any client. About now you're thinking, yeah, doubling my income, inspiring a million followers, and influencing all my clients would be great convention outcomes. But what about Dale Irvin? Yes, the hilarious convention updates will be delivered by the world's only professional summarizer. So who else will be on the main stage? You'll learn from Bruce Turkell, the branding expert featured on Fox Business, showing you proven ways to create your powerful, profitable brand. You'll see direct from the Guinness Book of World Records, Bob Gray, teaching you incredible memory techniques to avoid brain freeze. And you'll hear from even more amazing presenters who will be revealed in future convention promotions. So about now you're thinking, uh, what else is there at convention besides the impressive main stage action? There's a robust learning lounge where you can experience TED-like talks or take a hands-on test drive of new technology or discuss cutting-edge strategies that'll take years off your learning curve. Plus, you'll be able to choose from 50 count them 50 diverse breakout sessions like how to be the ultimate road warrior by jessica pettit the woman who spent 304 days on the road last year living out of one carry-on suitcase she'll be spilling all her secrets or you can pick up phrasing techniques from professional speech writer pete weissman who's worked in the white house and the senate the list goes on and on and so does your return on investment there will be bonus sunrise sessions bonus late day sessions live coaching sessions and experiential learning that will help transform your business. Top it off with free Wi-Fi in your hotel room, a celebration of NSA's 40th anniversary, and lots of surprises we won't provide spoilers for, and you've got an NSA convention that is worth every dollar or euro. About now you're thinking, okay, you can stop selling, just tell me where to register. Go to nsaspeaker.org or click on the links in the promotional emails we'll be sending you repeatedly with even more details. The NSA convention, July 27th through 30th in Philadelphia. And now back by popular demand, the new star of VOE, Rob Shore, and his five sure ways. Rob? In this episode of Five Sure Ways, I'd like to talk to you about five sure ways to increase your coaching revenue. In 2007, after a 30-year corporate career, I decided to leave corporate America, gave up a very lucrative career for professional speaking. I figured I'd travel the landscape talking to my niche of financial services about All kinds of issues, not the least of which is how to increase your MQ, your memorability quotient. It all worked out great for about 12 months until the Great Recession. And then I had to rethink the entire business model, which led me closely to coaching in my niche, wholesaling. And there are five ways that I have found that you can increase your coaching revenue. The first way is the way that you're most familiar with, the traditional one-on-one coaching, which is paid for by the client. Number two is one-on-one paid for by the corporate sponsor. 
In this case, your corporate sponsorships are going to allow you not only to speak in front of live audiences, but to allow you to ply your coaching craft as paid for by the companies that you serve. It also makes an excellent add-on after you're selling a speaking event to be able to tack on a value add that might be coaching services as follow-up to the events that you book. Number three is group masterminds. In the group masterminds, this is where 10, 12, 15 participants, each out of their own wallet, are going to pay $200 a month. And for $200 a month, we're going to meet twice a month for 50 minutes per session. It's open-ended, but it's billed automatically to their PayPal credit card. So we have this recurring stream of revenue created by group participants. And then the groups are divided into, in our case, veterans, those with over three years of experience, and rookies, those with less than three years of experience. So in this way, we're able to create recurring revenue from our coaching endeavor, and we're able to do that, keep the cost low, by having a greater number of folks than just a simple one-on-one -on -one session. The fourth way is the new EST way, and that is we're starting to implement video coaching. And we're doing video coaching using Google+. That is to say, we're using Google Hangouts through Google Plus to be able to do video coaching. And we're doing this at the corporate level. We're able to tell our corporate clients that we can run sales training and wholesaler training for their sales professionals on the inside sales desk. We can do it using Google Plus. And if we set up a special account, we can then have that Google Plus Hangout go automatically to YouTube. And at YouTube, we can market private and those individual clients can consume that content from the YouTube channel at their leisure, which is a direct recreation of the coaching session that we held for them. And the last one is live coaching. Now, not to be confused with strictly a live presentation in live coaching, we call it tabletop coaching. We're able to bring our practices from our individual and group mastermind coaching engagements directly into the classroom. And we bring the same kinds of questions and the same kinds of topic engagement live into the classroom. And we engage tabletops of five to seven folks in those same topics, thereby creating a huge swell of actionable ideas created by the room of 40, 50, 60 folks that are engaged in our workshops. Five ways to increase your coaching revenue. One, the traditional route that you're used to, one-on-one -on -one coaching paid by the client. Two, one-on-one -on -one paid by the corporate sponsor. Three, group masterminds. And don't forget, you can segment them to veteran or rookie. Four, video coaching through Google Plus tied directly to YouTube. And five, live coaching, we call it tabletop coaching, which is designed to be done on site. Good luck with your five sure ways to create additional coaching revenue. Thanks, Rob. Our next guest shares a somewhat different perspective on the speaking business and on life. CSP, CPAE, Speaker Hall of Fame member George Walther has enjoyed a long and storied career as a professional communicator. And he also happens to be a world-class world traveler. One of the things we've learned on VOE this year is that there is no one right way to do this business. The key is to find your way. And no one has done this better than our next guest. Join me now as George Walther shares his perspective on how to do just that. I'm here with the great George Walther. CSP, CPAE, Hall of Fame speaker. I think it was probably almost 20 years ago, George, that I saw you present with, uh, I think you were on stage with Lou Holtz, if I remember correctly. I thought, my gosh, that guy is amazing. And uh, I still think that you're amazing, George. <laughs> it's great to have you here today. Uh, George, we were talking earlier. You were trying to explain to me that a slug 
impacted your view of the speaking business? And my life. And your life? How so? Well, the slug didn't actually communicate directly with me, but it was the encounter that the, with the slug that did it. At the time, my office was in Seattle, and that's one of those places where when it's nice, you go, whoa, stop everything. The sun is out. And literally in Seattle, when you're listening to the traffic report, they have alerts for sun breaks because you have to be careful. There's sun. People are slowing down to look at the sun. It could be a big traffic jam. And it was one of those great days in Seattle where I had been busily working in the office and thought, gosh, it's so nice out. I'm going to take a hike. And midday, my daughter was in school. I went off on a hike. And I'm, I'm the sort of person who watches Animal Channel or National Geographic or Science Channel. I, I just love that kind of thing, learning about new stuff. And as I walked along, I saw a long, like a four-inch long, big, bulging, yellow, slimy slug. I thought, isn't that interesting? I can see from here that he's pulling in. He's got a couple little feelers or antennae. And I could see as soon as I approached, they sucked in. I thought, oh, that slug's very aware of me. And so I tread instead of, I tread very lightly. They still sucked in. He's really super sensitive. And I got up close and I thought, maybe if I just tap my toe. And he still sucked him in. I thought, boy, how, what is his threshold of awareness? And eventually I was on my belly on the trail, eye to eye with this slug, and realized that I could barely move my finger and it would suck in its antennae. And I was so fascinated with this. And then I felt guilt. I had a moment of thinking, wait a minute. The top-performing NSA speakers are not out lying on their belly communicating with a slug. They're on the phone talking to meeting planners, getting jobs so that they can get booked, so that they can get money, so, they, so that they can have the riches that allows them to buy what makes them happy. I mean, I should be back. I could go back to the office and make some calls, and I might get a speech, and then I have to I could get a better car. I could have a bigger house. I could do exactly what I want which for me is lying on my belly looking at a slug being interested in how perceptive it is. And so the message for me in my speaking business and in my life is, hold it, what do you want to do? Not what are you told you ought to be doing, not what is the outward sign, the trappings, the thing that says, oh, that person works a tremendous amount. They, that's why they have the Ferrari or that's why they have all this highfalutin life. And to me, it is all comes down to what gives you the greatest pleasure. Do that. Don't worry about what outsiders or society or the norms teach you is good. And I think it further impacts speaking uh, because I think of lifestyles and presentation styles on a continuum. And if you're listening here and you hear, you, you just put your arms out, stretch them both out, and you say, well, over at one end is completely conventional. Speak in a manner that you will come off as absolutely professional and be sure you never say anything offensive, controversial, or upsetting. And at the other end, you might be a completely bizarre, offensive presenter who alienates a huge chunk of your audience. Well, you get to decide where you're going to be on that continuum. And as long as you're down at the normal end, don't worry, nobody will ever be alienated or remember you, or be entertained and tickled, or be stimulated to think differently. But at the far other end, you they may be fleeing from your presentation room. 
So you decide where along there. And in my life, my experience has been, it's always good to take about two steps toward the unconventional end. So maybe 5% or 10% of your audience is going to find it a little upsetting. Yeah, but 90% is going to never forget you or implement it or put it to work. So whether it's in your approach to living or the way you are on the platform, I think that it's perfectly fine to step away from the norm. And I certainly choose to live that way in my life. And on stage, I, I don't want to be a normal, bland, vanilla guy. Is that why you were standing on top of the table when I saw you speak that first time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, that is the weirdest thing. Uh, that, that presentation was about customer loyalty, building a marketing program that gets customers to stay on. And I was using the analogy of a conveyor belt. I said, in customer relationships, you have really three jobs to perform. One is to get people onto your conveyor belt, get them to say, I'll make that first purchase or I'm going to be your customer. And that is the most exciting thing. I got a new customer. I signed him up. Yay. It's just the least profitable thing you can do in the business. It's exciting, but it's the least profitable. The second job is to keep them on the conveyor belt so that over time, each of their future transactions is more highly profit leveraged because you're amortizing the acquisition cost, the investment you had to make to begin the relationship. And the third stage in any customer relationship is to deal with people when they are teetering on the edge. Hopefully you get to them before they fall off the conveyor belt. But the most profitable thing you could do is focus on customers who are a little unhappy and potentially about to bail, taking with them the knowledge of what drove them away, which you want as a business person. What did I do that offended you? And second, they leave and spread negative word of mouth. So that was the essence of the message. And it happened that I once spoke in a room where there was a half wall dividing the room. And I thought, oh, that's kind of like a conveyor belt. And I stepped up onto it and I dramatized. I walked along, you know, had my arms out, teetering my loyalty. And a funny thing, after the speech, so many people said, oh, that was great the way you got up there. And then for the next speech, I thought, oh, maybe I'll put a couple tables up here. I could get up on the tables. It's amazing to me how doing something like that, I mean, you mentioned, this is no setup, you mentioned remembering that. I meet people all the time, and they, oh, you're the guy who stood up on the table. It was 19 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Step out of normalcy. You don't need to be bland to impact your audience. In fact, the less bland you are, the more likely you are to impact your audience. George, you are highly creative. What do you do to stimulate your creativity? Ooh, everything I can all day long. Uh, driving here, I, I came to this particular recording session in a car that has a seek button on the radio. Like Indian? S-E-E-K. Oh. <laughs> and that's sick, by the oh. way, rather than seek. All right. But in the car, I press the seek button, which, of course, jumps ahead to the next strong station. Well, maybe it lands on opera. I'm not an opera fan. However, if the radio delivered opera to me, I force myself to listen for an opera, or, which sometimes could be 45 minutes long. It's terrible. And then you push it again, and you end up on rap. Well, I, personally, I'm not a rap fan. However, rap would not be on the radio. That station would not be able to continue broadcasting unless there must be a significant portion of people who like rap. 
I better not be out of touch. I want to find out what's it like. So by continuously pressing the seek button, I get exposed to lots of different music and audio excerpts that I wouldn't naturally have chosen. Now, here's what I imagine is happening in my head. My brain is receiving, okay, an opera. My brain is not used to listening to opera. The little, the neurons are going, what, what? This is unusual. This is a strangely discordant set of sounds. We're not used to this. We're used to classic rock and roll. What's this? We'll have to carve some new neural pathways to handle this unusual stimuli. So it doesn't just broaden your appreciation for music. It gets new synaptic connections going. And of course, if you want to avoid Alzheimer's, well, you're not really going to grow any new neurons, but you are going to grow new connections between the neurons that you have. And those synaptic connections are what keep you fresh and alert. So that's one simple way to stimulate creativity. Okay, you want to go to a Chinese restaurant with me? I can tell you what I'm ordering. Well, it depends on the day. If it's the third of the month, I'm going to say, I'll have number three. I go, but, but you don't know what it is. That's the point. I don't know what it is. Surprise me. I'm having number three. It's the third. I always order by date. And that way, something comes to me that, again, my palate is not used to. I probably would not have chosen it. And so often, uh, Ye's Chinese Walk is a restaurant near my office. And I happen to be on the, the 17th. I ordered, oh, number 17. I would never have ordered assorted mushrooms. It was a huge plate of assorted mushrooms. It was wonderful. In fact, I now sometimes go back on the 17th just to be sure I can get those mushrooms. <laughs> but again, your palate says, this is something new and different. I want my brain to be constantly exercised because whether it's an international trip or the item you select from a menu without knowing what it is, or the radio station that the seek button happened to bring you to, your brain is constantly getting, oh, something new, a new, a new, I don't know what that is. It's a new something. I better learn how to be flexible and accept new somethings. You mentioned traveling internationally. You do a lot of traveling. Anyone who knows you knows that you are quite the world traveler. How many countries now? 107. 107. 107 today. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. What's the, what's the goal number? Uh, I have no goal number. I, people generally ask, you know, what is your favorite place? You've been to 107 countries. And I can tell you my second favorite place is the island of Bali and the nation of Indonesia. And invariably, well, okay, but what's your first? Well, my first is any place I haven't been. Mm. I, over the coming year, I have travel planned for Easter Island, Namibia, Sumatra, and Burma. Why? Oh, I haven't been there. I, I don't want to miss Easter Island. I mean, for goodness sakes, you can't go through life without having gone there. <laughs> so my favorite place is always wherever I haven't yet been because I want my brain to encounter a flood of new stuff. Uh, which also helps on the platform. How? Our audiences want to be around fresh, creative people who are doing things in an unusual way. And after all, isn't that our role as speakers from the outside is to bring fresh input, fresh ideas to our audiences and have them approach things in a different way and to keep ourselves fresh, lively, and alert. When I make sure that I'm enjoying my life, I think of it as, well, this is really part of my job. Because meeting planners don't want to hire someone who is living an unhappy life and say, oh, look, here's the model we want to present to you, our valued employees, 
be like this unhappy person. No, they want a vibrant, happy, entertaining, engaging person up on stage. So it's really part of our job description is to live happy, lively, fresh, different lives. And that's one of the reasons I do it. And for you, that means traveling. The biggest charge I get is stepping off a plane at a very small airport in a third world country where people have absolutely no connection with our frenzied, hurried pace of life. Uh, Just a couple of months ago, I was on a trek in Sikkim, the kingdom of Sikkim, which is in the Himalayas, right in between Nepal is on the left, Bhutan is on the right, India is down below, up above is Tibet. So here's this tiny place. It is now officially part of India. However, there it's the kingdom of Sikkim. I was around people who have never touched a computer. I was around kids whose great thrill was they had a tennis ball. They threw this tennis ball around. They had a wonderful time. They did not have an Xbox. They've never played a video game. They were so happy to be playing with the tennis ball, surrounded by magnificent nature that they worship and honor. I want that kind of input for myself in my travels. So my joy, be in a place where people are completely different from us. And that's helped you on the, on the platform? Absolutely. Example, I was hired to give a talk in the Middle East. I had not traveled in the Middle East and was really not very familiar with Islam with people who are Muslims. And I, so I went early. And <laughs> I used to be embarrassed to admit this, and now I'm proud. I stay in youth hostels. I love to stay in youth hostels. I could stay at the Hyatt, but I couldn't stay as frequently at the Hyatt from a money standpoint as I can in a youth hostel. And in all the Hyatts and other hotels I've stayed in, not once ever have I gone to the lobby found a group of people I didn't know, end up having a deep, meaningful conversation and feeling connected in a Hyatt lobby. And yet I've never stayed in a youth hostel and not had exactly that happen. So I'll go early and stay in a youth hostel and try to absorb as much of the local culture as I can so that when I walk on stage, I feel confident. This particular engagement I'm referring to in the Middle East Because I went early and stayed in youth hostels, you stay up late, someone brings out a guitar, you start asking questions. How come a Muslim can marry a Jew and a Muslim can marry a Christian, but a Muslim can't marry a Hindu? Why is that? And I just don't want to understand. And so I learn about Islam, and then I go on stage with an audience, 100% Muslim. And it happened that we had been talking in the youth hostel about the quality of the calls to prayer. So as a Muslim, five times a day, you have a call to prayer. And the person who does that, usually these days on a microphone through a broadcasting system, perhaps on top of a minaret, is a muezzin, M-U-E-Z-Z-I-N. And this group of people I was sitting sitting around with a guitar, they were telling me about how important it is that the quality of the call to prayer be inspiring in itself. And after my youth hostel experience, I addressed my audience, a very large petroleum company based in the Middle East. And during my presentation, I heard the call to prayer. And fortunately, because of my youth hostel experience, I knew to be silent and respectful and wait. And it was a long call to prayer. And at the end, I was able to tune in and say, that is one of the most beautiful, 
voice-in calls I've ever heard. I am so grateful for the opportunity. The audience was so pleased that this was not another American coming in being annoyed that the call to prayer coming through the walls was interrupting his important presentation. And I shed a tear in front of my audience because the, the beautiful aspects of their particular faith are so beautiful. And yet in the Western world, we almost always focus on the negative aspects. And I was having a, you know, kind of John Lennon moment thinking, why can't we all just forget the barriers to people and appreciate the beauty in each other? And it was one of the very most rewarding presentations I've ever had. Now, if I had not gone early and satisfied my own curiosity to see what is it that people who, are, who embrace Islam, what are they thinking? How's that go? If I had not done that, I might have barreled along and been annoyed by the call to prayer. I probably would not have recognized the quality, the tonal quality of the, the person doing the calling. And my audience would have thought that I was an ethnocentric, you know, I'm an American, we know how things go, we're the best. They know that I am respectful of others, and that made the presentation itself be so well-received. George, my children call you Curious George. <laughs> and it seems that it's that curiosity that enables you to connect with your audiences. Definitely. And I'm very careful not to draw a distinction between audiences, professional speaking, and life. It's not that you have a job and then you go live your life. Particularly in our case, in this profession, your job is your life. And that sense of curiosity that I like to live in my daily life is also what makes audiences drawn to us as speakers. It's because most of them are not very curious. Most of them are in nine-to-five type jobs and feel like they have to do what their employer tells them to do, so often I feel like standing on stage going, don't waste your life working for this company. <laughs> it doesn't go for well with the meeting planner. <laughs> but for God's sake, don't stay at the office this weekend. Go be with your kids. Take the trip. You're not going to win the lottery. Don't, don't be one of those people who says, if I won the lottery, then I'd really travel. You're not going to. Go. Youth hostels are cheap. Enjoy the experience. It keeps you alive and alert. It allows you as a speaker to infect your audience with that curious spirit, which after all, during your, what, 120 years you get to be on the planet, during that time, you have the opportunity to be on a straight, narrow, boring, bland path. Or you can say, hey, what I like to do is look at slugs. Thank you, George. And now in a segment he likes to call the President's Message, which is fitting given that he is our NSA President, El Presidente himself, Ron Culberson. Thanks, Theo. My father-in-law died the day after Thanksgiving. He had been dealing with several health challenges, but his death was somewhat unexpected. After his funeral, I was back home on my daily walk and turned, as I usually do, through a local cemetery. Now, before I go on, let me explain a little bit about my background. I used to mow cemeteries as a kid. Then as an adult, I had a career as a hospice social worker. So I'm pretty comfortable in cemeteries. Not in a weird goth and zombie way, but because I find them to be quiet and peaceful places. Kind of the opposite of an NSA event now that I think about it. Anyway, 
I was walking through the cemetery that day, thinking about how death always makes us look at life differently. And I glanced over and saw this headstone that stopped me dead in my tracks. Well, so to speak. The name on the headstone was Clarity. I know, right? It freaked me out. But it confirmed something I already knew from my hospice work as well as my life experiences. Death does give us clarity. You see, when someone dies, we get a wake-up call about what's really important in life. Stephen Covey even had a habit about it. He called it beginning with the end in mind. He suggested that we can figure out what our goal in life is simply by imagining what we would want others to say about us at our funerals, our family, friends, or colleagues. It reminds me of an old joke about three guys sitting in a bar talking about their own funerals and what they wanted people to say as they stood over their coffins. One guy said he wanted people to say he was a great father. The next guy said he wanted people to say he was a great husband. The third guy said he wanted people to say, hey, look, he's moving. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And I suspect some of you, not so much. But the message is pretty clear. Most of us, if not all of us, would rather not die, right? And yet we all will. So what are you doing to prepare prepare for your death? And I'm not talking about your will, your advanced medical directive, or the music you want at your funeral service, although all of those can be very helpful to the people left behind. What I'm talking about is how are you living your life so that you're prepared for the end of your life? You see, the speaking business makes it very easy for us to get all wrapped up about us. We have to promote ourselves to get business. We get more business when people like us. We put our faces on our business cards, and our websites are usually www.myname.com. It really can be all about us. But when we get close to the end of our lives, the focus shifts, and the value of our lives is based on something other than ourselves. It's about the relationships in our lives and the impact we had on others through these relationships. And when it comes to impact, let me challenge your thinking a little bit. It's not the impact you made from the platform. Oh, sure, we touch people with our words, our books, and our personal development systems. But let's be honest. For the vast majority of us, the impact of our work will be short-lived. However, when we visit a neighbor who's sick, or we show our children how to live by the right values, or we say something to our spouse that he or she really needed to hear right then, then we make an impact that lives long after we do. I cared for some pretty important and successful people when I worked in hospice care. But none of them went out of this world satisfied by the success of their work. Those who were at peace were satisfied with the success of their relationships. And those who struggled most at the end of their lives were the ones who realized they had their focus on the wrong things. My hospice experience had a great impact on me. It changed the way I see the world. And yet I still get my own priorities out of whack on a regular basis. I guess I'm a work in progress. But it's the work that matters. If we pay attention to the relationships in life and then try to be better at them each and every day, I think we can face the end of our lives with satisfaction and a sense of peace. And to me, that's the clarity that death brings to life. That's what I know. I hope it's somehow helpful to you. Thank you, Ron. Well, gang, that wraps up another edition of VOE. So now what? Well, that's up to you. Several people have shared with me that they have been listening to each edition multiple times and finding they get more and more out of it each time they listen. Have you tried that? Not to worry. It's not like I get a royalty check every time you listen. At least I don't think I do. I know from personal experience that there are many layers and nuances to these interviews that are sometimes missed on the first listen. I still can't get over that story of how Wynn Sheridan and two of his fraternity brothers read Good to Great, did what was in the book, then built a business they sold for $650 million. 
Obviously, they did more than just that, but imagine if Jim Collins got a piece of every business that implemented just one of his ideas. Imagine if you did. Next time someone questions your fees, be sure you focus on the value you're creating, not just on the money you're charging. Thank you to Win Sheridan for such a candid and revealing look at how he built his business. Thanks, too, to all of our other guests for the insights and ideas. Thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath, who has so generously contributed her music to VOE. And you can learn more about her and her music by visiting www.kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thanks to you, the listener, for well listening. And thanks to all the volunteers who make NSA possible. Be sure to visit the NSA website at www.nsaspeaker.org and register for convention. Thanks, too, for the wonderful emails and fan mail, and now even phone calls that keep pouring in. I'm really, I'm, I'm blown away and very, very grateful. Hope to see you in Philly, and until next time, peace and love, NSA Nation, peace and love. And it won't be long before our ship comes in passing. It won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.